0: This week on Hangar Talk, Tecnam and Cessna both booked some big orders.
1: And the FAA offers medical reconciliation to some veterans.
0: AOPA gives away a ton of money. Everyone is talking about the Olive flying electric car. Finally, if you fly a turbocharged airplane, there's a new AD coming for you. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David.
1: From AOPA, your freedom to fly.
2: This is Hangar Talk. With your hosts,
3: Ian
0: Twombly and David Tulis.
1: This is Hangar Talk.
0: Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest is Nathan Hammond. Nathan is a skywriter, which is such a cool job. We always see him, well, and we will see him this year at AirVenture. He'll be up there spelling out EAA and good morning and all that kind of stuff. Smiley face in the sky. Yeah. Smiley face. That's right. So we caught up with him recently and uh, talked a little bit about how it works, the airplane, and, and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, kudos to Michelle Walker for finding Nathan. And she found him because they both fly out of the uh, old Rhinebeck Aerodrome. So we'll mm-hmm. hear more about that, too.
0: All right, fantastic. Okay, so we'll get to that in a few minutes. First, uh, we'll go over the news and starting with some good news. And that is that yeah. both Technum and Cessna have booked some big orders recently for flight schools technum with the p mentor which will actually be in an upcoming issue of aop a pilot so you can read all about
1: it. but Check your mailboxes soon.
0: Yep. This uh, flight school out of Kansas City, Kilo Charlie Aviation, uh, they've ordered 30 airplanes from Technum. That's a big order for them.
1: That's right. And that includes 12 P-Mentor piston singles as part of that. They're going to get them, uh, you know, sort of trickle out a little bit at a time, but Mm -hmm. 30, that's a big order. Listen, Ian, we did a little bit of homework on that P-Mentor, FYI, and you found out that it's $316,000 for basically the VFR version. Yeah. And it goes up from there. Yeah. What's the top dollar on one of those?
0: So the top dollar apparently IFR with an autopilot and a parachute is it's pushing 400,000. I think it's like $390,000. This is for a basic trainer, so we're you know, we're in 172 territory here. It's a two two-person trainer. Yeah, right. For a two-person airplane. Technum is going after the American training market with the P-Mentor, and it's supposed to be a high-class experience, they say. This is is interesting to me just because I had never even heard of this flight school. Technum claims they have 96 students, which for 30 airplanes, that's not enough students for airplanes, so obviously they're expecting some growth. Yep, They've only been around since 2020, so it just goes to show basically how fast flight training is expanding in certain regions, essentially to, to fill the beast in the airline cockpits.
1: Indeed, Ian, and following up on that, let's talk a little bit about ATP and their order for 40 Cessna Skyhawks. And, you know, ATP has expanded in the past few years pretty rapidly. They're up to about 82 training centers That's amazing. nationwide. And by the time you hear this, maybe it might be 90 by the time you hear this. I
0: know. <laughs> they go so fast. Yeah. It's true.
1: But the deal is, is that the flight school, at uh, ATV flight school, it's, uh, because they're so spread out across the USA, they're able to train about 20,000 airline pilots by 2030. That's their goal. So that's a lot of students now. Look, Ian even still if you have 20,000 pilots, you know, graduating to the flight lines, that's by 2030. What we really need is about 30,000 a year. Yeah. Right now.
0: Yeah, so that's only a small portion. I know. So there's 82 training centers. They have this will make it actually this 40 Skyhawks go in addition to their 200. They already have plus a ton of Pipers.
1: That's right. And they modified in their fleet to have a bunch of new airplanes in the past few years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. Um, they are just going gangbusters. It's amazing. All right. Hey, let's move on. This is, God, this was a fascinating story to me. And that is that the FAA is offering medical reconciliation to some veterans who have essentially claimed disability benefits but not disclose those on their FAA medical certificate applications.
1: So explaining this a little bit to the loyal Hangar talk listeners, you know, we gotta understand that when you fill out that medical, when you register and get your third class medical or even your basic med, you gotta say what's going on, if you've had any outstanding issues, things like that. And so, folks were basically claiming, if I understand it, they were claiming VA benefits. Mm -hmm. And then, through the medical application process, the FAA learned that, well, they're still flying, but yet they're claiming benefits. Yeah. So, are are they fit to fly or are they not fit to fly?
0: Yeah. There's so many layers to this story. I mean, one is that you could... There are definitely, this is, by the way, this is 4,800 people, and essentially what's happened is, like other programs in the past where the FAA is, is encouraging voluntary re- reporting, Right. that you're getting essentially through the end of July in and in a, in another month, more or less, to raise your hand and say, no, 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 I screwed up, I am receiving VA benefits, essentially to make yourself right, and they will be an, I don't want to call it amnesty, because it's not amnesty, but it's, it's, you know, they're giving a period where you can, hopefully without penalty.
1: Make a correction to your record, and it just honestly report what the deal is
0: yeah and so there is a question on the medical certificate application are you receiving there's actually lots of questions that deal with you know it's like have you been managed from the military have you been denied uh, because of a medical thing and it asks specifically are you receiving benefits I don't know a whole lot about the VA having not gone through their bureaucracy but I can understand where it's like if you get VA benefits as in you're a veteran right you might mistake that for no I'm, I'm not a disability, even though maybe the VA does consider it disability. I don't know. I could see where somebody might honestly make that mistake. So it is interesting, though, because like you said, it's like they're not only are they getting a disability benefit, but they're also trying to get an FAA medical certificate without disclosing it.
1: Well, here's what I think is more. I agree with you, and here's what and thank you also for explaining that, Ian. Here's um, sort of the, the nut graph of this, which is it says nearly 60 of the 4,800 pilots Flagged for investigations may have disqualifying conditions. Hmm. So really, you shouldn't be flying yeah. if you have disqualifying conditions. Right. And and we we hear all the time about certain pilots that would love to keep flying, but they can't. So now they have to sell their aircraft, and they some of them relinquish their AOPA membership. Although some keep it because they love the magazines mm-hmm. and what we do. Mm-hmm. But if you have a disqualifying condition, I mean, it, it could be minor. Or it could be pretty major. Yeah. In, in in reference to flying, right? In flight,
0: right? But you got to go through that process and do what the FAA asks of you. I will say, AOPA is helping folks with this. We've had lots of calls already about it. So definitely call in to the hotline. Call into the medical certification staff. Right. Talk about how you think you might be impacted and how we can help guide you through that process.
1: Our medical certification specialists are excellent. I've used them myself. Yep. Cannot speak more highly of that crew.
0: Yep, absolutely. Hey, let's move on to some good news. And that's a bunch of money that AOPA has given away. Very good news. Through the AOPA Foundation and, and through its generous donors, 1.3 million bucks as a matter of fact.
1: That's right nearly 150 students teachers and other aspiring pilots including some that are also already in the professional career development stage have received some of this money and the money that is available for them ranges from $250 up to 20,000 bucks. Yeah. The average scholarship is about $9,000 which is about enough to get your private pilot certificate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So
1: that's great news for for more than 100 people.
0: So We've gotten to talk to lots of these folks over the years, David, but you actually know one of them personally, and you know them pretty well. So yeah. talk about the kind of person who can apply and win one of these scholarships.
1: Well, you know, obviously a lot of high school students and folks who are um, headed towards college and an aviation career. But a friend of ours, uh, someone who works the flight line here and, and might be a recognizable face to some folks who have looked at a couple of our videos – Alton Downer here at Signature. He's a flight line employee at Signature Aviation. He had been flying every once in a while uh, whenever he could afford it, and he started an application process about four or five years ago. He actually submitted um, applications at least two prior times that I know of. I want to say Alton's in his mid 40s. He's got a family, you know, he's got wife and kids. He wants to do Something good with aviation as far as getting the next generation involved, including underprivileged kids who might not know there are careers in aviation. Uh, Alton was extremely proud of himself when I saw him the other day. Of course, he fuels our, our aircraft. He was awarded one of the professional scholarships, the Carlsbad Jet Center and Sonoma Jet Center GA professional scholarship. And he told me himself that he's already planning on taking a few more flight lessons. He had just gotten landings down when he basically ran out of money like a lot of us do. Yeah, sure. And so now that he told me he's going to have to, you know, get back on the stick, do it about twice a week. And he was so happy. The smile was from ear to ear, In That's cool. Great
0: to see a professional pursue their passion. Yeah, that's really neat. I, um, that was my first job in aviation was work in line. Uh-huh. It was great. It's good experience. But I can tell you that as a pilot, you're that much better at that job. So if he wants to fly for a living, the scholarship hopefully would allow him to do that. And even if he doesn't, and if he wants to go up through management at the FBI or something like that, being a pilot is a huge asset there. I think. Right. So, congrats to him. That's that's very cool. And I think a, a key point there is that he had to apply multiple times, but he kept at it. He did, and it, and it worked out for him. So.
1: Yeah, and you know what? When, um, just a tip for folks who might be listening to us and thinking about applying for either a professional, you know, career scholarship in the future, or even some of the students that listen to us. Put down on that application what your goals are in aviation for sure, but also don't forget You know, we're looking for folks who have a well-rounded career, people who are standouts in the community, leaders, if you will, Mm -hmm. and also how you would fund that scholarship if you can't get it all done, how you would fund, I'm sorry, the rest of your aviation training if you can't get it all done with just the scholarship. So have a plan B. Yeah,
0: because we want people who are going to become pilots. Right. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. Absolutely. Commitment. Yeah. And I will say, so when you look for these to come around next year, definitely get in there, make that application But a key thing that I saw early on when I, when I've read a few of these applications is you get these fantastic personal applications and then no supporting recommendation. And so it's like, you got to have that supporting recommendation. So make sure you stay on that person to do it by the deadline when it comes time next year. So congrats to all those folks. And we'll be right back. David, electric cars. Oh yeah. This has been all the rage
1: Flying cars.
0: Yeah, have you ever heard of a flying cars. car, Ian? I have heard of a flying <laughs> car. I'm sure everybody saw it was. You know, we had non-pilots. Uh, we all had family friends. Like, hey, they just certified the first flying car, and of course, that's totally bunk. Uh huh. And we're talking about the Aleph. A L E F, which got yeah a ton of press in the last couple of weeks for apparently, I don't know, doing a whole lot of nothing. It seems to me, uh, <laughs> getting a test <laughs> that's certified. Right. You know, so, yeah, but it it came out as the first flying VTOL car to get FAA certification, which we know is just not true.
1: That's correct. Now, a couple of basics for this device, which uh, they hope to build. The certification, and even my brother Martin said, hey, did you hear about the $300,000 flying car? I said, well, Martin, look, here's the thing they are approved to build this model so they can test it and decide, decide and see if it actually will work. Mm-hmm. You know, It's not like the FAA said, oh, yeah, you're certified and yeah, the car's in production. I mean, you're looking at a 10-year timeline, generally, yes. for something like that. But, Ian, you and I right now could get on board for $150
0: yeah. if you're a gambler. And I will say, <laughs> clearly, their press push worked because if it was just to get the deposit rolls and I will say okay, so a quick aside about that. 150 bucks is not going to give them any num- amount of funding. It's totally uh-huh. so that they can say in future press materials, we've got a thousand pre orders. People are really interested right. in this thing, right? When it's really just 150 bucks to be able to put your name on a list. Or
1: fifteen hundred dollars for a
0: priority. Oh, okay. You know, so
1: if you want to do that, well, the the model is called a Model A. So a little bit about the car, flying car, 200 mile driving range, 110 mile flying range, and it's all electric. So that is cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. The idea is that you could drive this on public roads and then take off vertically and land vertically. Now that's different than what uh, Mort Taylor had mm-hmm. for the, the Aero car, which was first introduced in 1949, then was actually in production in 1956 and six cars were produced. Yep. Among them, I've seen one at Greg Herrick's Museum up in uh, Anoka. Yep. But the Mort Aero car was a car with a it's like a twin like a boom on the back of the car. Yeah. And you kind of needed to drive it to an airport to take off.
0: Yeah, and that's that's a lot like the Terrafugia, which uh-huh. they ended up calling a—which did get LSA approval, so not certification per se, but LSA approval. They ended up calling that a roadable aircraft, and that's right. kind of what it was, right. you know, kind of a marginal car, but an airplane. This thing, the mock-up, as far as I can tell, I mean, there's no aviation aspect to it. It's just a car shell. It's just a carbon fiber car shell. Right.
1: And then the thing that, that our listeners probably already know, but just to reinforce that, you know— the safety requirements for for automobiles, in the, at least in the USA, are pretty severe. Yeah. I mean, that's why you have, you know, large front ends on a lot of cars. You've got a lot of safety devices like bumpers and airbags and, you know, uh, different crushable areas of a car yeah. in case you're in an accident. Because, let's face it, there are a lot of fender benders, you know, if you just – have to, all you have to do is drive down the road a little bit. But airplanes are different. You wanna be lighter. You wanna be more nimble. You know, mm-hmm. aircraft are, are light are lighter and more nimble. And generally, you know, every ounce is sort of analyzed before you're, you know, putting something in production like that. So it's kind of hard to mate those two yeah. structural requirements.
0: Hasn't worked terribly well in the past, that's for sure. So this will be I, – I just was tickled to kind of read this everywhere and saying, oh, my God, it's here. The, fring, the flying car is here. The Jetsons are here. And it's like, no, not so fast.
1: Well, before we leave the subject, so one that's closer probably to your heart since you're a gyrocopter pilot. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'll remember this one. I wrote a little story about it a couple of years ago. The PAL-V Liberty.
0: I do remember that. That was a cool-looking car, yeah.
1: It's a gyrocopter, sort of like trike motorcycle Mm -hmm. uh, design, an Italian design. And this one actually had some serious numbers. 4.5-hour endurance was planned, 6.9 gallons per hour in the air, with a 310-mile range and a 542-pound useful load. But, Ian... It was $399,000. Now, I yeah. don't know where they are right now in their development, Yeah, but that's another option.
0: You know, speaking of gyroplanes, and this is a great aside, when I was learning to fly one a couple of years ago, they the instructor showed me photos. There's a group in Europe. I, I want to say they're based in the Czech Republic. They have fitted electric motors to their tires, to their wheels, so they land— Secure the rotor and then go drive on the road with it, and it and it works. They totally they did a whole European tour with this thing. There was like four of them, and so they've got all these photos of them in like these downtown old ancient European cities with these modern gyrocopters. You know the blades, yeah, sort of fore and aft, and uh, yeah, driving down city streets. So it totally worked for them. That is cool. That is a neat design yeah. concept. I'd be impressed yep. with that. Yep.
1: All right, we'll have to stay tuned to what's happening with the Olif Model A. I wonder if they're going
0: to be at Air Venture in a couple I weeks. Somebody will be there probably, but not as the company. Yeah, <laughs> they'll okay. take all those 150 bucks and put it into an exhibiting fee. All right, hey, want to talk about V-band couplings on turbocharged engines? If you fly an airplane with a turbocharged engine, you've probably heard about these. Maybe your airplane's already subject to an AD. Mm-hmm. If not, it will be soon because after really decades of piecemeal ADs trying to address these. The FAA has uh, published the one and only to rule them all AD, that uh, will require inspection and replacement of these spot-welded V-band couplings.
1: And that's the difference, spot-welded in versus riveted. If you have riveted construction on that device between the tailpipe and the turbocharger, you're okay. Mm-hmm. But if it's a spot-welded uh, situation, the multi, multi-segment spot-welded exhaust pipe, V-band couplings, you are in for uh, at least, you're down for at least about I don't know, 60 bucks for an inspection, $600 for a removal and replacement. That's what the FAA says. That's an FAA hourly rate of $85. My mechanics are generally, that I use are generally more than that.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: But you're right, published June 12th. This is really important because in the Mooney world that I used to live in, there were a lot of Mooney two thirty ones that had some real mysterious power loss problems, mm. and so this is bringing that engine and similar like engines uh, and and turbocharged constructions all to the forefront of one AD instead of just a bunch of different yeah, a small now.
0: ADS for different for different models. Yep. So it's interesting. The FAA recognized the supply chain issues going on, and they recognized how essentially all of these owners of turbocharged airplanes are going to have to flood the parts market at the same time. And so they, it requires a 500-hour life limit replacement on these V-band couplings. But, of course, a lot of people aren't going to know how old theirs are, how long they've been in service. Right. And so they are allowing— So what
1: can they do for that if they don't know?
0: Yeah, so they are allowing 50 hours of time in service, so from now until the 50 hours, to replace it. But recognizing that they won't be available, probably, they're going to give two years where after the 50 hours, you then have to inspect it every six months or 100 hours time and service, whichever comes first, hopefully giving you enough time throughout that two years to, to replace it.
1: And importantly, the new AD does not apply to aircraft that have complied with certain previous ADs. And or to aircraft, like we said, with riveted V-band turbocharger exhaust couplings installed. Yeah. Uh, But there are no other exceptions. And, you know, Ian, this is a real serious problem because it has already led to aircraft accidents, accidents, including fatalities. So this is not something to just blow off. This is very serious.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I would be curious. I mean, we didn't research this, but it would seem to me there's got to be a bunch of STCs already out there to change these, knowing that they're a problem, to change them from spot well to derivative. Wouldn't you think? I mean...
1: You would think so. But, you know, then again, there are uh, aircraft around that haven't flown in a number of years and pilots who might not be aware of those type things. And they get up and crank it up and put, you know, put some air in the tires, light, you know, light the fires and go. And then you got some issues. Yeah. Absolutely. And there are serious issues,
0: too. Yeah. You
1: know, uh, if the coupling breaks and, and and you could, it could lead to smoke in the cockpit, it could lead to fires.
0: Yeah, because all uh, that heat coming you know, off the turbocharger exactly. needs to go somewhere. Yep.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yep. So, yeah, check out the website or um, your Type Club, which I'm sure is also a great source of information, as you mentioned, like the Mooney community or others.
1: And put your order in now to now, get, those, exactly. get those new couplings. And hopefully
0: you'll get it in the next two years, yeah. All right, David. So we want to bring on Nathan Hammond. In addition to having a really cool job, he gets to fly a really cool airplane, which is a super chipmunk. Yeah, Not too many of those around. Painted up red, white, and blue as the ghost writer. And uh, as you mentioned, Michelle caught up with him and we find out about, uh, about his job.
2: Hi, I'm Nathan Hammond, owner and pilot of Ghost Rider Air Shows, the airplane we see behind us here. It's a De Havilland Super Chipmunk. We fly air shows all across the country, both day shows, night shows, and every once in a while we do some skyriding. So we do most of our skywriting at at air shows across country. Uh, most people will probably know us from Oshkosh Air Venture, EA Air Venture up there. Uh, if you've ever been to to air Venture and looked up and seen the smile in the sky or EA written across the sky, uh, that's going to be us up there in the sky. And uh, and what we do is we take the airplane, we go up to about twelve thousand feet above the above the airport there, and we take the smoke oil, inject it into the exhaust, and uh, Uh, about a gallon per letter, and we can write, oh, 20, 25 letters uh, per flight before we run out of smoke oil.
3: Very cool. But you also perform in the air show doing aerobatics, right?
2: We do. So so not only do we do the skywriting, but also day show aerobatics and night show aerobatics. So places like Oshkosh or here at Sun and Fun, where we're at today, we'll fly a day show, low-level aerobatics, just good old-fashioned. It's a chipmunk, right? So it, it, it's not like an MX, it's not like an Extra, but it loops and it rolls really good and it sounds even better and blows a lot of smoke. So we're a great opener to an air show. And then at night, we bolt on about 200 pounds of pyro on the wingtips and light up the night sky and, and become the 4th of July every Saturday night.
3: How is the flying different amongst skywriting day show, night show? Is there any differences in the way you fly?
2: Sure, a little. There's a little bit of difference between how we fly. For skywriting, it's it's really nice actually because we get to go up real high, so the air conditioner is always on. Surprisingly, a lot of people don't understand that skywriting is not written vertically in the sky. We're actually horizontal, so so all of our letters are on a flat plane, which makes it kind of nice because it's non aerobatic. But the problem is you can't see the the letters as you're writing them because they're all in a line so every once in a while you'll see the airplane will just pop up a little bit take a look at it and then right back down in line because you don't want the, the letters to stagger you want everything in a nice smooth plane for the day show aerobatics that's down in the dirt romping stomping it's always an exchange of altitude for energy so you're slow up high and you're fast down low back and forth back and forth And then at night we do the same thing it's just now we've got explosives on the wingtips which is just always fun
3: yeah absolutely do you have to um take any other considerations when you've got the pyro on the airplane
2: when we've got the pyro on the airplane at night we use the parallax at night you don't have depth perception at least not in the in the aerobatic box for the crowd now now i do because i have the runway lights below me and and all the the horizon lights but at night the crowd they don't know the depth of the airplane. So we use that to our advantage. uh, And it allows us to actually fly a very exciting looking show in a very non-complex, I don't wanna use the word dumbed down, but a, a simpler show, a safer show at night which allows us to do some really fun things like we've seen it at Oshkosh and and here tonight at Sun and Fun.
3: Going back a little bit, could you tell me what got you into aviation?
2: So I got my start in aviation uh, actually at the home of Old Rhinebeck Aerodrome in Rhinebeck, New York. Was born and raised up there and uh, my father was the the chief mechanic and chief pilot up there with Cole Palin. So Old Rhinebeck was my playground. That's where I was born and raised and grew up. They say it takes a village to raise a child and that was my village so by the age of 10, I could tell you everything about all the airplanes up there. Didn't know anything about sports, didn't know anything else except airplanes and music. And, and that was my start. And that's where I realized that, that being an entertainer, being an airshow performer was, was something I really wanted to do with my life and pursued that throughout the years. Went to college, had a backup plan, went to college, got an aviation administration degree, was able to run my own Business. We've got a, a maintenance shop that we run. Became a school teacher there for a little bit, and uh, run an aviation program, and then still fly the air shows on the weekends. So it's it's been a fun life.
3: What led you to do air show performing in the Chipmunk versus a vintage airplane like you would have seen at Old Rhinebeck?
2: So I got my start with the Chipmunk. Oh, probably around age 12 or 13. This airplane actually came into the airport that, that I was working at. I was a ramp rat at age 12, you know, just pulling the gas hose wherever I could, helping out wherever I could. It turns out the owner of the airplane knew my father, and they were they were good buddies. And my father was was pressed into flying this airplane, ferrying it from airshow to airshow. So at age 12, I got to ride in the front seat of this airplane, going from airshow to airshow, and that really set the hook. Uh, old Ryan Beck started the love, and and this set the hook. And so I've I've got, oh, 3,000, 4,000 hours just in this airplane alone. And I tell everybody it's my one airplane, right? If you're destined to fly one the rest of your days, this is going to be my one. Now, I leave it open because I haven't flown a Corsair yet, but it's just a wonderful airplane. It loops, it rolls, it doesn't need to tumble, it doesn't need to snap. Uh, We'll leave that to the extra 300s and the other high-performance. Think of it as a 300-horse decathlon. And, and it's a wonderful airplane for that and then at cross country I can click along at 150 miles an hour and and, and then because it's a, a trainer right it was it was designed as a primary trainer so it's a big robust airplane built like a tank wide stance gear means I can take it into unapproved strips I can go back country with it and, and go hang out with some of those friends on on some of the mellower places but it's it's just a great all-around airplane and so that's that's why I stick with it
3: that's great. What would you say is some of your favorite kind of flying?
2: Without a doubt, my favorite kind of flying is, is the air show environment. Just, just being there on stage, showing what the airplane can do. I mean, because the airplane's the star. That's what people see, and, and, that's, and that's what we want to present in a, a good, entertaining way, is, is showing what this airplane can do. And, uh, and then when we leave the box, we hope everybody's smiling and happy. And then when you throw some fireworks on it, it makes it even better.
3: Great, do you get to interact with crowds at air shows a lot? Get to talk to them about, about after they've, they've seen you perform and hear their excitement?
2: Yeah, so one of the great things we get to do at air shows is walk the crowd line. So you, you get to interact, you get to be that spark for, for the up and coming, the next generation of, of aerospace because for me personally, it started at an air show and I know a lot of people, it starts at an air show. It's their first, their first interaction with, with aerospace. It might be an aerobatic airplane, it might be STEM, it might be just talking to, I mean, we're here in the NOAA hangar talking with uh, NOAA folks. It it could be anything. And the ability to be that spark that might light a fire in somebody and steer them down the path of aerospace, that's a special feeling, it really is.
3: What have been some of your biggest aviation challenges?
2: Biggest challenges in aviation? For me, surprisingly, it's been my, uh, uh, my CFI. I've wanted to become a CFI, I've wanted to do it, and I'll, I'll pick up the books, I'll start studying, I'll start doing the lesson plans, and just for whatever reason, I've, I've yet to be able to do my CFI. Was able to get an a knocked out really fast, uh, use it every day, of course commercial and whatnot, but just the CFI has, has haunted me. I just can't find, I, I can't find the answer to that one. So we'll keep working on it though, and uh, that way we can pass on the knowledge to the next generation, because that's the important part.
3: Yeah, I was going to ask what about the CFI, really what's driving you to really want to be a CFI?
2: Yeah, so so it's it's always the next generation, be it my kids or or the next one that's that's just hanging out at the airport. Being able to get them into the airplane and and have loggable time in the airplane. I mean, experience is great, but but you have to have the logbook to back it up. And so having that CFI endorsement and being able to sign the logbook, that's important. And then I'm sure all instructors do it for their own reason, but you know, watching that first solo or, or watching the, the landing after a check ride and seeing that student, you know, bound out of the airplane, just just the excitement level. I, I remember what it was like for me being a student and I can only imagine what it is for the instructor.
3: So in the meantime, um, until you're a CFI, are there things that you are doing in addition to flying in air shows to inspire people, inspire the next generation?
2: Yeah, so, so not only am I a, a, an airshow pilot during uh, the weekends, but nine to five, I'm actually a school teacher with the Bluegrass Aerospace Experience, uh, where we take a carbon cub kit, a Cub Crafters carbon cub kit. And on the first day of school, we unbox the kit. And by the last day of school, the airplane is completed, signed off, FA endorsed, and hopefully sold because the next group of kids come in August 1st again. We're in our fourth year. We'll start our fifth year, uh, August of this year. And so that that keeps me busy during the the, the winter months and nine to five on or well, I guess eight to three on Monday through Friday, and uh, and I get that same experience, you know, watching the students realize that that aerospace is around them everywhere. It's not just flying. It's not just. Being a mechanic, it's not just being a pilot, it's all over the place. And and that's what the program we do, it's just a big door that opens aerospace so that these students understand that, that there is all kinds of opportunity out there.
3: That's great, that is such a cool idea.
2: Yeah, yeah it really worked out
3: Must be such a great experience for them. Yeah. Do you have any advice for, for students, student pilots, people looking to get into aviation?
2: The best advice I can give to, to uh, student pilots or people wanting to get into aviation is 90% is showing up. Just go to the airport, show up, be there, absorb it. The the hour you fly the airplane is is just a portion. It's it's a tiny portion. Just be there. Show up at the airport and and soak it all in. That's 90% of it.
3: So what is it about flying that you love?
2: What do I love about flying? It's the overall feeling that that does it for me. I mean, when you taxi out, you line up on the center line of the runway, your hands on the throttle, and you push that throttle forward, you know that you are in for the best time of your life. That is the special moment for me, is pushing the power up on takeoff. And then being able to watch the sunset, pull up 500 foot, watch it again, and then just being out there and being able to decompress. I mean, it doesn't matter if I've had a good day or a bad day, I can always go climb in the airplane and it just takes me right back to center. And that's what aviation does for me.
0: It's a really cool job that a lot of us never think about, but he impacts all of us at Air Venture and Fun. So yeah, if you're if you're there, definitely look up, give him a wave, and and a thanks for uh, brightening the morning there.
1: Sounds good, and I hope to see Nate in a couple of weeks at Air Venture, and uh, maybe some of our listeners that are listening now. And and just a quick reminder, thanks to all of them. We are going into season eight after Air Venture, Ian. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. And uh, we're looking to have a lot more fun and a lot more great guests
0: next year. Absolutely. All right. That's all the time we have. We'll see you next time. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen.
1: And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks also to Austin for pointing us to the Aleph aircraft, which is something that was right. flying under the radar screen until he started talking about that's
0: it. That's right. <laughs> all right. We'll see you.
1: Hangar Talk from AOPA.
2: Your freedom to fly.